Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. If you're new, welcome. Very glad that you decided to join us this weekend. Um, I couldn't hear you sing real well because my ears seem to be plugged this morning. So if I tip over, just stand me back up, okay? <laughs> Feel, feeling that little echo chamber going on right now. I would love to pray with you. We're about to step into the book of Judges, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 13 and chapter 14. If you're new here, we're doing a study called E2E. It's uh, eternity to eternity. We started in the book of Genesis, marching our way towards the New Testament. We find ourselves in the book of Judges this morning. And this story that you're about to look at, this looks like it is totally gift-wrapped for a Netflix production. It, it, I can't believe someone hasn't picked it up and made it into a movie yet, because it's just stunning. Um, we're going to learn about the life of Samson. So let's pray together, ask God to speak to us through this passage, and see how it applies to our life. Would you join me in that? Lord God, I thank you for everything that was just declared in truth this morning, that, that when you are for us, as Bradley led us, none could be against us because you're on our side. We come to passages like this morning, and what we're looking at, Father, it, it's kind of confusing at just a, a read, simply because it's hard to put the pieces together. So we're really dependent upon your Holy Spirit. We thank you for what was written down, but we ask that you would teach us through your power Help us to see the things that you want us to understand and how it applies to our life. More than that, God, we asked how we would know you better and that we would understand better who we are. So we pray for each of these things, asking that you would be our guide and teacher. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 So this eternal mission that we've been watching all the way through the book of Genesis, all the way through the book of Exodus, through Leviticus, through Numbers, through Deuteronomy, through Joshua, and now we find ourselves in the book of Judges, this eternal mission of God's amazing grace is at stake in Judges 13 and 14. It looks like things have come to a complete standstill. It just reminds me of how incredibly patient God is. Because in the darkest days of this particular nation, the nation of Israel that we're learning about this morning, when the light of dedication to God seems to be nearly extinguished and on life support, what we find in the very beginning of chapter 13 is God the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus, if you're new to church, that means Jesus before Christmas, the pre-incarnate Jesus shows up on the scene and He announces that He's going to raise up a rescuer, one of these deliverers. And the arrival will be in the form of a boy, a baby boy by the name of Samson. And his arrival is an emphatic declaration on God's part that He is refusing to let Israel perish. He's not going to let His amazing grace demonstration go out of existence. So we're going to jump over into verse 1 of chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can follow along that way. You'll see all the verses on the screen as well. Let's read what it says. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. Now if there is one particular enemy that is a deep thorn in the flesh of Israel, it's the Philistines. It is definitely their counterpart. There seemed to be kind of an antagonist. They're also called in the Bible the people of the sea because of how they arrived on the scene. They are warlike, they are powerful, and they are constantly picking fights, especially with Israel. 
What we understand about them archaeologically is that they arrived around 1100 BC. They seem to be of Greek descent. And it appears that they sailed down the Mediterranean coastline from the area of Greece around the Aegean Sea, coming all the way down to the south towards Egypt. And they decided to get out of their boats somewhere around where Israel meets Egypt, right in that southwest corner. But at the same time, they didn't just leave Greece and get in boats. They left Greece and went through Turkey on land and came all the way around sweeping into what is Israel today called the Levant area with one purpose in mind. They wanted to attack Egypt, and they had a determination in their minds that they were going to be the new conquerors of Egypt. So some of them arrived by sea, and some of them arrived by land, and they leave a path of destruction wherever they go. Now, their most notable and long-lasting contribution to our era is their name. Philistine is the derivative or the base of the name Palestine. So Palestine or Palestinian is rooted in this word Philistine. And so there's a carry over here of the name that's familiar to us today. Now, originally they had their sights set on Egypt and wanting to take Egypt as their own possession. But ruling on the throne in Egypt was Pharaoh Ramesses III. And Pharaoh Ramesses III had a much more powerful military than what they understood, and so he repelled them at the border, kept them from coming in, and because he defeated them, he actually took their military men, their soldiers, and conscripted them. He hired them, if you will, and put them in various border cities, one of which is called Gaza, and the other one is called Ashdod and Ashkelon. So he positioned them as guards and as workers in those particular cities. And they became the oppressors of the neighborhood. And they were constantly picking fights. And they actually became the main reason for why Israel will seek a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they finally cried out to God and said, okay, we've had it. Just give us a king, please. We just would like a ruler to come over us. So we find this statement in Judges 13 verse 1. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistine 40 years, which would cause you to say, well, that's pretty shocking. Why would God give His own people over to these aggressors? Well, because of their apostasy. We talked about this last week, a little bit what apostasy is, when somebody knows what God has called them to do, and they say, yeah, no thanks, I'm going that way. They know the truth, but they choose to go in a different direction. So that's what apostasy is. Well, that's rampant throughout Israel. They know what God wants them to do, but they're rejecting God. So the 40 years that's being referred to here includes the 40 years of the life of Samson, who became a judge or a deliverer for Israel for 20 years. Now, very interestingly, if you're a Bible nerd like I am and you love history, you'll find it fascinating that Samson's life overlaps Eli's life, and Eli is a high priest of Israel at this period of time. So they live, they're contemporaries at the same time. Eli is the high priest that lost the Ark of the Covenant and lost it when it went into battle, and then he died immediately afterwards. But that's just kind of an aside, something you might want to know. Here's what's really conspicuous. You find zero reference to Israel crying out to God for rescue. There's no evidence whatsoever of even wanting to be delivered. Now, you might be looking at that and saying, how is that possible? Because they become complacent. They're really good with their lifestyle. 
They don't mind living among the Philistines. And so they become complacent and accepting, this is our new life, this is our new way of living. Well, this complacency provokes Yahweh, God, to stir the pot, if you will. He needs to poke the hornet's nest, and He's going to provoke discontent among these people. Into that setting, Jesus arrives on the scene. It's referred to as the angel of the Lord here, and I'll expand on that in just a minute. He arrives and He tells Samson's parents, they're actually going to have a very special son, even though they haven't been able to have a baby up to this point. What's very important is during the pregnancy, the mom is not to consume alcohol, and she's not to eat anything unclean, ceremonial, unclean. She's got to carry out certain steps that God directs her on. Go with me to verse 2. We're going to kind of treat chapter 13 in a, a big summary here. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Go with me to verse 4. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, or, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines." Obviously, if you're a student of the Bible, you know the Bible is very, very clear that every child is a special creation of God. Amen? Every child. We understand that from the moment of conception, every child is special to God. And that truth is actually confirmed in this prenatal treatment here of what she's got to watch when she eats and drinks. Logically, she's carrying a baby. There's a, there's a real human in her womb, so she has to be careful about what she drinks and what she eats. But this Nazarite vow that we're told about, that goes way, way beyond just being conscious about what you take into your body. The word Nazarite actually means dedicated. And in Numbers chapter 6, we're actually told what a Nazarite is supposed to do. Now, a vow that's made to God can be weeks, it can be months, it, in some cases, extreme cases, it can be years. You see Paul in the New Testament taking on a vow to God, something like a Nazarite vow when he shaved his head. Well, this is the converse of that. In this Nazarite vow case, he's not supposed to cut his hair, and he can't have any wine, and he can't have any beer, and he's not supposed to eat any grapes or any raisins. And one third thing that comes to it also is he can't come near a dead body, a corpse of any form, either human or animal. He's got to abstain from all of those things. The reason for that is it's supposed to symbolize this life of separation that God has called him apart for. In other words, he's like you. When Jesus died for you and you confessed Jesus as your Savior, God said, you are holy to me. You've been set apart. Well, Samson in this case has been set apart for very specific reasons. However, he's going to violate all three of his vows, and he certainly does not live a life that is separated to God. You'll see this in just a moment. So the pre-incarnate Christ shows up, the angel of the Lord. The parents realize that they need to honor the Lord for this visit. Although they don't fully know who He is yet, so they actually go ahead and ask. And this dialogue that takes place, we're going to jump all the way down to verse 15, this dialogue that takes place is between Manoah, the dad, and God the Son, if you will, Jesus, 
It takes place in a very comical way because Manoah is trying to extract more information out of God and Jesus is holding back and Jesus responds with just very limited information, not long answers. He's actually kind of curt, but he's very polite and this is how it goes. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. Now, etiquette in the ancient world demands that they provide a meal. Your guest shows up, you're supposed to feed them. If not, even go to the length of giving them a place to sleep, even if they come completely unannounced. Very similar to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham provides meals for his visitors. So in his case, he wants to prepare a young goat. But Manoah, the dad, doesn't know yet that this is the angel of the Lord, and he's thinking he's just fixing food for supper. Like, I'm going to take a choice goat, and we're going to have a really good meal together. But Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, says to him, I can't eat that food, but if you make it a burnt offering to the Lord, that'll be fine. In return, as a response to that, they ask his name, verse 18. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he, meaning God, the son, he, capital H, performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. So God the Son has just deflected the question. He doesn't want to give out this information, but he responds with a clue. He says, my name is beyond understanding. That's the actual meaning in the Hebrew language of this word wonderful that he uses. Now, there is only one in the Bible who is called wonderful. And he's saying here, my name is beyond wonderful. The Hebrew word is Pele. It's not in your notes. Don't look for it. Pele actually means beyond understanding or beyond comprehension. I'm sure that sometime in the next month, you're probably going to get a Christmas card at your house. Some of you will get one that's got Isaiah chapter 9 and some of you will get Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And you know what it says if you're a student of God's Word. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. It's the only other reference in the entire Old Testament to this one who is called Wonderful. And it's a name reserved exclusively for Jesus, projecting what this one will be when He comes one day. So even if Jesus were to give Manoah his name, he wouldn't understand it, and it's incomprehensible to Manoah to understand what God is up to and what he's doing. So he just has to say, no, I can't tell you. It's too wonderful for you to understand. So Manoah presents the offering. He goes forward with that, and, and as these flames rise up, God the Son somehow fuses into the flames before their startled eyes. They're absolutely shocked, and Manoah thinks he's going to die as a result of seeing God. But what you find in the story is his wife has greater spiritual insight than he does, and she's much more mature in her walk. 
and she uses common sense. Look at the responses now in verse 22. Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. So Mrs. Manoah uses common sense. She says, you're wrong on that. The Lord would not promise a child if he's going to kill us. Verse 24, then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Manana. Manana I really don't like these Old Testament names. <laughs> I can stand here and make it awkward and stare at it. Mahananadun. Whatever. Between Zorah and Eshtal. Right? Okay. So Samson is born, and he's the first real superhero. We talk about superheroes today, and we make them out of comic books, but we've got a, a real legitimate superhero here. And his early years swiftly fly by, and we don't get any detail on it, and it's covered just between chapters 13 and 14 with no information, but time goes by really quick, and now he's a grown man. So we flew through chapter 13, and we find this young man who's grown, and he's brash, and he's reckless. And he's a guy that the Bible describes as driven by fleshly desires. Uh, this is kind of his characteristic. I'm just going to pull this out for you so you understand what you're looking at as you read about this guy. He's stubborn. He's irrational. He's got a violent temper. And he's got a combustible personality. All of those things combined together make him for being a really toxic person when it comes to interpersonal skills. But setting all that aside, spiritually... This guy has wild disregard for the commands of God. He knows what God wants him to do, but he's not willing to do it. Now, all of that combined make his life legendary, not in a good way. Because also at the very center of his life is an infatuation with women, especially Philistine women, women whom God said, hands off, buddy. Those are not for you, but he has an unbridled passion. But here's what's remarkable to me, church. Even though all of that's true, along comes verse 25, and we read this at the end of chapter 13, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, that even though all these things are screwed up in his life, God's going to still be at work in his life, and he's the last person you would think from an outside view, you would say, wow, God's really going to use that guy. Apparently, what that last verse is informing us of is this. Samson would not be involved in God's plan if it were not for God stirring him. The Spirit has to move him, which is absolutely consistent with the rest of his nation because Israel has become very complacent, and if they're left to themselves, they'd be really satisfied to just coexist. So God's Spirit has to poke the hornet's nest because they become comfortably complacent. Now, because of this reluctance to change and this tendency to just go with the flow, God's taking the initiative as you go forward in these next verses. Now, here's just a side note for you. Samson's mom is portrayed as a really beautiful person. She, she's represented here in Scripture as a person who's unquestioning in her faith. She's very logical in her thinking, and she's a model of womanhood. 
She's called by God to bear this deliverer, much like Mary was called to bear Jesus. Now, Manoah, for his part, he's really eager to learn more about God. And we've already seen he's intrigued. He wants to know more information about this one. And he's also a guy, as you read, he's submissive to God. Now, together, you would put the mom and dad together and say, wow, looks like they're doing pretty good in their household. They've got these skills together, and they're pretty dedicated to God. But what you find is they've got really poor parenting skills, and they really go overboard in overindulging their special son. It's very evident that as this child grows, he's allowed to have fairly loose boundaries. Something has to account for the ridiculous arrogance that's in his life. So Samson is different than the other judges you've learned about so far. He's different in this way. He's not coming from a disadvantaged background. He's coming from an advantaged background. Mom and dad have their act together. And he's been chosen from the womb. And we're told that God's hand is on him so that he would be a deliverer. So logically, you would say, wow, things like, looks like things should go really great. But then along comes chapter 14 and starts out in verse 1 this way. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now, you just want to pause there for a moment, don't you? I go, really? Especially after God said, they're off limits. But he doesn't care. Pick it up with me. Verse 3, then his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help, but this, is, this song keeps popping in my mind. This happened to me in the 9 o'clock service. In the 70s, there was a song that started out. It has nothing to do with what I'm teaching. But <laughs> <laughs> ooga, 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 Chuck. Remember that? <laughs> got to find a woman. Got to find a woman. Yeah, that's where he's going. All right. So things begin to go really, really south when he insists on marrying a Philistine woman, which is clearly forbidden by God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said, whatever you do, just don't go into the Philistines. They're going to corrupt you. But he's going to do it anyway because he's a superhero and nothing can hurt him. He's bulletproof. So he sees her and he wants her because she's hot. So his choice tells you something about this guy. He's really surfacy in his emotions in regard to this. He's shallow because he's completely attracted to her simply based on her physical appearance. He doesn't know anything about her. Read the story. He hasn't even talked to her yet. He knows nothing about her family, where she comes from. So his parents, they attempt to discourage him. They want to dissuade him away from disobeying God. But he won't have anything to do with it. He just ignores their counsel. So though he's a grown man, he's acting like a child, insisting that he gets his way. Uh, in the church, we all have a kryptonite in our life. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? You know, the comic book hero is Superman. We're told he, he's invincible, he's bulletproof, he can do anything except for that one thing. He's got kryptonite, and kryptonite will weaken him. Well, we all have some form of a kryptonite in our life that will weaken us, that will take us off mission. 
And if it's allowed to run rampant, it actually can become crippling in our life to the degree that it can destroy God's greater purpose for our life. Well, Samson's kryptonite is women and narcissism. This guy is incredibly self-absorbed. It's all about him. So he comes home and he tells his parents, I found a woman and I want her. Well, he has to tell his parents because parents negotiate marriage contracts at this time. Culturally, he has to bring his dad in on this. And so they respond very purposefully, and you don't catch it in the English, but let me put it back on the screen for you when they say, why would you want this uncircumcised Philistine? And it's intentionally done in a sneering fashion. So you understand the background here of what's going on. Back in Genesis, God had told Abraham, your offspring shall be circumcised. That will be evidence of the covenant that you have with me. And they were to carry it on as a tradition throughout the generations that they would be circumcised. Now, a lot of nations around them practice circumcision of the males, except for the Philistines. So culturally, that reduced them and put them down at the bottom of the ladder, and the rest of the nations looked at them as these barbarians who were warlike in their behavior, and they were uncircumcised. And so mom and dad are not responding necessarily here in the covenantal nature. They're responding more in the cultural nature of why them? Couldn't you marry somebody else? So they're intentionally doing it in an uncircumcised Philistine sneering way? Really, Samson? The objections from the parents are more like, why can't you find a good Jewish girl? But his response is this, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. That's, that's the way it actually reads in the Hebrew, she's right in my eyes. In other words, she looks good to me, but it's not just physically looking good to me. He's answering his parents by saying, she's all that any other Jewish woman would be if I went for a Jewish woman. In other words, she's good for my standards, totally ignoring God's standards. It'd be great if he'd say, she's right in God's eyes, because he's been set apart. He's been made holy for God's purposes, but that's not his goal, which is highly disrespectful to his parents and to God, and a really calloused approach to the implications that he's just compromised his mission. Now, we know from looking at Judges chapter 25, I mentioned this a few weeks ago to you, that of the people of this era, many of them are behaving in a way that Scripture says they're all doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Well, Samson is just a reflection of that. He's doing whatever seems right in his own eyes. So he responds, I want you to get her for me. God saw all this coming. God's not surprised by this. He determined to create tension between Israel and the Philistines. Now, to be sure, Samson has become fully part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And mom and dad know his desire is not of God. But let's keep remembering there's a bigger picture here. God's doing something in the background. His work is at hand through this connection. So we find this in statement in verse 4. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Now, verse 4 is kind of shocking, that God is working in the midst of this bad decision, 
And it would cause anybody, whether they're new to the Bible or a long time working through the Bible, to say, Wait, how in the world is God actually of that? Why is He working through this? Well, as I said, verse 4 is kind of the key to the whole narrative because it's reminding us that God works in the midst of difficult circumstances, right, church? He works in the good and in the bad, and He allows difficult circumstances to come into our lives because He's sovereign, even though we can't make sense of it. There's a greater purpose going on. And remember what God's intending to do here. God intends to disrupt the status quo. It exists throughout the nation. They become highly complacent, and He's working behind the scenes, causing all things to work together for good, even the bad things, because that's what God does, Romans 8, 28. Let me remind you of that, church. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Even the rotten things that come along, if you're in relationship with God, He's working through those circumstances to bring about a good, maybe a good that you can't even see yet. But because He's incredibly patient and sovereign, He knows what He's doing. So on an earthly level, Samson will not move on his own. So God has to use this situation to move him against the Philistines. And since the parents' pleading doesn't seem to work, they give in. Verse 5, then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done." So apparently Samson and his parents are on this journey to negotiate the marriage contract. They're going from their town down to her town, and they become separated along the way. Apparently when they get to these vineyards. They want to discuss the marriage arrangements. They take a different path. Samson comes behind him, and that's when he gets attacked. And we're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and as a result, he shreds a lion. Now, this is intense with a capital I. I've never been charged by a lion. How about you? Never encountered a roaring lion. I ticked off a bear once in Alaska, but that's an entirely different story let alone, I've never ripped a goat down the middle. And so when they write and say, as one tears a young goat, I'm thinking, one, who, who would do that? And it's talking about lengthwise, ripping it from stem to stern, if you will. Here's the actual word that's used in the Hebrew language, shasha. It means to split or tear or cleave or cloven. So you can get the image when you think of a cloven hoofed animal, it's split in the middle at their hoof. So that's what it's talking about here. So this guy's not just strong. We're, we're looking at abnormal, superhuman strength. Most people, when they think of Samson, they think of like Thor. Massive biceps, massive thighs, huge shoulders, big deltoids, well-developed. Guy's really, really built. But there's a lot of really well-built people on this planet, and I don't think any of them could ever tear a lion in half because it's describing here picking up the right leg and picking up the left leg on the rear side and shredding this thing into two pieces. And he has nothing in his hands when he does this. Now, being ambushed by a lion is not uncommon in ancient Israel. 
There, there are many Asiatic lions and many mountain lions at this period of time, just like we have them out in the west in the Rockies. Well, they had both Asiatic lions and mountain lions, but the lions are always favored in an attack. An attack is always favored by the predator. Very fast, very sharp claws, ferocious fangs, fantastic strength. But this lion chooses the wrong victim. And that's all the information we get until we get this little detail coming up in verse 7. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. Verse 8, when he returned later, later is very key there, when he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion, so he scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. So it's several months later because marriage contracts are always 12 months long in the ancient world. From the time that the contract is negotiated, 12 months would go by before the actual wedding ceremony. So it's not just later, it's many months later when he walks by thinking, maybe I'll see some flies in that line. I just want to check it out. I'd probably do the exact same thing. But instead of finding flies, he finds this colony of bees have brought this treasure, which would normally be great. But he's supposed to be avoiding dead bodies. So he just keeps breaking vow after vow after vow, and now he's come in contact with this corpse and he's breaking his Nazarite vow, which he totally ignores, and he reaches in and scoops the honey, takes some for himself, and he's about to share some with his parents. Now, we've all had lapses in judgment. We recognize, okay, we could look at that and say, well, what could that possibly hurt? And maybe that's what he's thinking. But Samson is callously implicating his parents in his defilement. He's offered honey to his parents that just came out of this corpse, and his perversion seems to know no boundary because his parents are the very ones who sanctified him as a child, and now he's desecrating them. And yet the entire incident could fade into obscurity were it not that he finds a reason to turn this into a mechanism for taunting people because the 12-month betrothal area period has come to an end, and it's time for him to get married. Go with me to the next section. Verse 10, then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. That little sentence right there is so rich historically and culturally Historians today study what's just been stated there to make sure they understand what's going on in the Philistine culture. Samson's dad is singled out, first of all, because dad's always signed the marriage contracts. So dad shows up to sign the marriage contract and officiate over what's supposed to take place because he's a witness. And like we sign legal documents today with witnesses, they have witnesses at this period of time. So it seems really innocent until this word feast comes on the scene, because we're told that Samson prepared a feast, which is the word mista in the Hebrew. And it's referring, and it's always only used, to a seven-day drinking orgy, a seven-day pagan feast, and it's taking place at the home of the bride's parents. 
So his Nazarite vows are being flagrantly broken here. We're looking at a stag party because that was part of the Philistine custom. That's why it says, as the men of that era customarily did. So they're bringing in these 30, if we would call them guards, these select young men of the town. There's a purpose behind that. These 30 companions that have just been provided have been provided by the bride's family. And it corresponds actually to the guest of the bridegroom that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. These are the ones who would be of the bridal party, if you will, the best men and all the groomsmen. But it appears that Samson failed to bring along his own attendants. So when he arrives in this foreign city, they appoint for him these 30 guards to attend to him because they want to make sure that this big dude with the huge biceps and the big deltoids is actually a foreigner in their land, and they want to know that he's going to do according to custom the things that he's supposed to do. So they conscript 30 companions to party with him. But their larger concern is that he would carry out the Philistine customs. So you got 30 pagan young men who've been selected to hang out with Samson at a seven-day drinking party. What could go wrong? No idea. Let's go forward and read the next section, verse 12. Then Samson, Samson said to them, let me now propound, the word is offer, a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet, but they could not tell the riddle in three days. Now, you just read it. You know it's all about the lion and the honey, but they don't know that. They haven't read Judges chapter 14. So Samson decides to make sport of this situation. He's got these 30 guards assigned to him, and he's proposing this riddle for his guards, and he promises them, you're going to get a complete suit of clothes if you can actually answer this. Now, there's a lot of money involved in this. We're talking about really long tunics that are woven of fine fabric that were used for these occasions, layered with other fine fabrics over the top, highly embroidered, really, really expensive clothing. Most people only had one of these if they had any of these changes in their closet. It would be their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. And these are the things that they really revered. So this is a huge temptation to them. So the Hebrew reads, riddle me a riddle. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Now, proposing riddles at weddings was not uncommon in the Greek world because they were usually a seven-day feast. They wanted things to pass the time. This would be very entertaining. So they're really eager to play this game. And so they present to him the opportunity to present his riddle. They've got this leisurely pace. Nobody's got anything going on. Lots of booze available. Let's hear it. So Samson's offer is very attractive. Verse 15, then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Those are like the wedding guests from hell. <laughs> We're going to torch you. Now, the, the riddle turns out to be really, really hard. But instead of just saying, okay, we give... We're going to kill you, and we're going to burn your dad and your mom and your entire house 
because they're frustrated. So they've pursued every possible lead, but they're stumped, and so in desperation, they resort to blackmail. And this festive atmosphere has now taken an ugly turn into a confrontation. And they corner his bride at her own wedding and tell her, if you don't get us the answer, we're going to kill you, and it will be ugly. So tell us. Next verse 16. Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. Now we get it with no real options. She's actually pleading for mercy from Samson, but what she's not doing is she's not telling him the situation. Rather than being honest with him and saying, hey, listen, these guys have threatened my life. Can you help me out here? She manipulates him and tries to trick him into an answer. Now, Samson's really good at keeping secrets, but she wears him down by all this crying and all this nagging for a week. And he's likely thinking, okay, this is the last day, seventh day has gone by, what could it possibly heart now? But his new young wife betrays him, verse 18, so the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. It is never a good thing to call your wife a heifer, <laughs> right? I don't care what culture or translation of Hebrew to English. It means what it means in Hebrew and in English. He's saying the exact same thing. So the seventh day, just before sundown, these 30 companions have an answer. And Samson is furious because he immediately knows what the source is for the answer. It's his bride and that she betrayed him. So he's got a problem on his hands and he's just recognized, you've cheated me. And because of all of these events, it triggers a war with the Philistines and it gets intensely amplified. Go with me to verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. Friend no more. We'll come back to that in just a second. He's so enraged. He travels an entire day's journey to this other city, Ashkelon, which is 23 miles away. And if you go that far, the odds are pretty good. No one down there is going to know that a wedding just took place and that these riddles were in place and that there was an exchange of garments. So there's not going to be really a link right away. So he gets to Ashkelon. He kills these 30 men, strips them of their clothing in order to make good on the debt from his own wedding. Now, in this culture... Marriage is not fully consummated as being legal until it's physically consummated on the seventh day. So the seventh day has gone by, and Samson's gone, and the father-in-law wonders if it's ever going to be made legal. He doesn't want his daughter disgraced. 
And he doesn't want her abandoned at the altar. So soon after the wedding, he gives her to Samson's best man, if you will. Samson doesn't know any of this. He's just raging, and he's trudging back home, still fuming, after this 50-mile round trip that he's made down to Ashkelon. He's so furious, he leaves this nightmare of a wedding behind him. But time goes by. The wedding took place early in the springtime. Months go by, and we know that because he comes back at the time of the harvest, which is in the fall, and he wants to make things right with his bride. So Samson shows up and says, hey, I'm back. Look, can we pick up where we left off? Well, the father-in-law won't let him in the house and says, I actually gave her to your best man. Samson's just been hit with a ton of bricks. If reconciliation was his hope, rage is now his response when he learns what happened. Oh, any person, whether new to the Bible or having read it, read it for 50 years, would look at this story and say, what in the world? What good can come from this mess? It's so full of flagrant sin. Yet we have to be reminded by the end of the story that God still has purpose for him when he gets his spiritual act together at the very end of his life. But that will be for next time because it's so complicated and so dark, we can't possibly get into it or you'll be here till one o'clock this afternoon and I won't do that to you. L let me take you into where this is going though. You recall that the last time we were together, we looked at the very last verse in the book of Judges. I mentioned it just a moment earlier. Look with me on the screen at this, it's Judges 21, 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a verse that's describing the culture of the time that they live in, doing whatever they thought was good, whatever they thought was appropriate, regardless of what God's standards were. Samson is a prime example of conforming to the undisciplined lifestyle of the culture that he's in. Now balance that against what you just learned. Although things start out really good, God the Son personally shows up on the scene and says, you're going to have a baby boy, and he's going to be a deliverer, and he's going to rescue his people. You very soon in the story find that you have to abandon any notion of this family becoming any kind of a solution for a deliverer to rescue. If evidence were required that each period of the Old Testament history points to the one still future, you would have to look at the book of Judges being the prime example because the Samson story represents the last of the series of these cycles of apostasy. Yeah, God, I know what you want, but I want what I want. Yeah, that's fine that you've written down your commandments, but I'm going to do this. The book of the Judges in Samson's life is the last of the cycle of this apostasy as this nation progressively sinks lower and lower and lower into the abyss of darkness. And not only is that true of the nation, it's true of those that God raised up as deliverers. So as I study this and I prepare and read this, I'm personally, I'm struck once again at just how incredibly 
patient that God is, that He is long-suffering. He's patient with me. I know that He's patient with you. When the book of Judges, 350 years go by during this period of time, this long span in the time of Judges, and during every one of these Judges that raise up who are deliverers, it just keeps pointing forward and forward and forward to the future when the need arises for one who is the permanent deliverer, the one who will arrive on the scene in a city called Bethlehem, who is coming to deliver His own, the one, the only one whose name is wonderful, who can truly deliver from this mess because of His amazing grace. His amazing grace is at stake when you open up Judges 13 and 14. That God says, I'm not letting that flame be extinguished. Now, lest you and I sit in the 21st century and we be guilty of casting stones at the choices that these people made in their messed up lives in the Old Testament, we have to step back and say, you know, it's a really good thing that God specializes in amazing grace, isn't it? It's a really good thing because we'd all be toast without it. So in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament have to remind us of the exact same thing. And that's where I end with you this morning. Look with me on the screen at this statement Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Did we deserve it? No. We're no better than Samson. We may have made better life choices, but we all have sin. Paul's saying, yep, in spite of that, God loved you with such a great love, He would not let you go. Praise God for that reality, New Hope. Take that with you out the door this morning in the midst of even looking at a very dark story. There's a reality that God has been patient and amazing in His grace with us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for every single soul that's here, everyone that's part of the virtual broadcast. We got to experience worship this morning. We worshiped You in song, and now we've worshiped You in studying Your Word. I pray that You would bless this time. Use it in our lives. Allow us to speak into the lives of people who are looking for answers, that we would speak the truth but speak it in love. We pray for that to be evident in our life this week as we carry Your Word forth. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.